Amen. Good morning, everybody. So good to have you here once again, although it's kind of a rainy, dreary morning uh, out there and maybe an early morning uh, for, for you. Uh, God is still worthy of our worship. Let's just give God praise for our worship team one more time for what they do uh, for us as well. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. And again, if you're visiting uh, with us today, uh, it is great to have you here. We love new people at Hope. Spring is in the air. How about this weather recently, huh? Have you, have you had a chance to get outside uh, the, past, the past week? I hope you have. Uh, spring means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For some of you, uh, you're just ready for anything above zero. That's just living in the frozen tundra sometimes is difficult uh, for you. It means warmer temperatures, you hear the birds chirping, you walk outside, and there's just that. Today just kind of smelled like spring, right? You got it smells like rain, the flowers are coming up, uh, the kids are going outside and playing. It means a lot of different things. In our household, for me in particular, what it means is March means March Madness. Is anybody else with me? I'm talking basketball, if you don't know what that means, folks, all right? Awesome. For the, for the seven basketball fans here today, this sermon will be awesome for you. For the rest of you, you can just follow along. But not only the Boys and Girls State Tournament here in Des Moines, but also for the first time ever, the NCAA uh, first and second rounds right here at Wells Fargo Arena this week. So we're really, really excited about that. However, it has not been that exciting of a past week. If you are an Iowa or Iowa State fan, both of those teams losing their first game in their conference tournament. So if you don't know a lot about basketball, there's kind of these smaller tournaments, the conference tournament, and then there's the big tournament, which is the NCAA tournament, the national tournament. So when a team starts out at the beginning of the year, obviously their goal, yeah, is to win the conference tournament, but it's really to get into the NCAA tournament. That's the bigger goal that they're thinking about. And so if you're kind of a nerd about this kind of stuff like I am, you listen to the press conferences and you read about what was said in the locker room by the coaches and the, the players and things like that. And it seems to be all centered around this tune of, you know, this loss hurts, but we're going to learn from our mistakes and we're going to move forward because we have bigger goals in mind. In other words, not just this tournament, but the national tournament. And so the coaches are constantly reminding their players, both in Iowa and Iowa State right now, the resounding theme is think bigger. Everybody say think bigger. Think bigger. Think bigger. In, in other words, have your goals set on something bigger. Expand your mind. Expand your perception. Don't settle for less. And it just so happens that this theme of think bigger is also the theme of what Jesus is saying in our scripture reading for today. Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry, and if we are going to truly understand who Jesus was and what his mission was, you and I too will need to think bigger. Everybody say, think bigger. Think bigger. I want you to leave here today thinking that in your mind. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 14. That's where we're going to be today in the scripture that was read for us. Mark chapter 14. Again, we would encourage you to bring your Bible every single week. I know it is a crazy thought to bring your Bible to church, but yes, we are that kind of a church, and you have no excuse. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. Grab five. That's our gift to you. We really dig into the scripture here. We want you to have that out in front of you. If you have it on your phone, that's fine. If you're going to tweet, just tweet about the sermon. That's all I ask. All right? So, Mark chapter 14. We've been going through this series called, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? And if you uh, were a child of the 90s, that might remind you of a certain rap song from the 90s as well. But we're looking for who Jesus is, the real Jesus. And we're looking at some stories that are a little off the beaten path. 
that aren't just, oh, Palm Sunday and then Good Friday and then, you know, there's the Last Supper or the Passover and then we get to Easter and we just cruise on through. There are some stories mixed in here in Holy Week that is really important for us to learn that are central to understanding who Jesus is. And when we arrive on the scene, what we're going to do today is we're going to skip ahead actually a little bit in time. We're going to move forward past Palm Sunday and go to after Jesus has already been arrested and he, he is on trial. And so when we get to this point, even in the story, the verdict is really kind of still out on who this guy is, who Jesus is. Yes, he's growing in popularity and some would say he's just a prophet. He's like the next Elijah. Some would say he's just a good teacher like John the Baptist or maybe just a great leader, but not necessarily God, until today. And so we pick up the story in Mark 14, verse 55. Jesus has been arrested by the the Jewish authorities, and he's been brought before the Sanhedrin. Everybody say Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin. Oh, I can tell you're pumped about it. Sanhedrin, right? The Sanhedrin is kind of almost the supreme court of the day in a religious sense. And so the, the Jewish religious council has brought Jesus forward, and they have brought, they have arrested him, on these charges, and this is the, maybe the most theological way I could think about it, the charges brought against Jesus were three counts of moving people's cheese, two counts of rocking the boat, and one count of ruffling some people's religious feathers. In other words, they don't have a lot to go on. It's very difficult to condemn an innocent man which Jesus is. And so they're trying to come up with these different things. They're trying to come up with ways that they can get rid of Jesus because here's what he was doing. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he started doing things that were outside of the box of what they wanted the Messiah to be. He started healing people, even on the Sabbath. He started forgiving people's sins, which I think only God can do that. He started hanging out with people that he shouldn't hang out with. He started performing miracles and doing all these things that they weren't too excited about. And at the same time, he was undercutting their power and the authority structures of the day. And they wanted to keep their power. And so what we need to do is squash this little Jesus revolution before it really gets off the ground. And so we'll just arrest the guy. We'll put him on trial. We'll convict him. We'll kill him off. And I'm sure we'll never hear anything about this Jesus stuff again. And that was 2,000 years ago. And so, we pick up the story in verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. Verse 56. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Think how hilarious that is. You're on trial, and the very people that are trying to convict you can't come up with a coherent story. These guys are saying one thing, and these guys are saying another thing. In other words, it's looking pretty good for Jesus at this point. It's hard to condemn an innocent man. Verse 60, then the high priest stood before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Jesus is God. In an instant, he could get himself out of this situation. He doesn't have to go through it. He wouldn't have to get arrested. He wouldn't have to be there right now. He wouldn't have to get beaten and flogged and crucified or any of that. But his mission's bigger than that. And I was thinking about it this week. Why did Jesus choose to be silent when he was on trial? Was it just because he was so smart and he knew kind of how to pick his battles? Or 
if you dig a little bit deeper than that, I was thinking about it. When you know who you are, and when you are confident in your identity, there's no need to prove it or defend yourself. When you are so deeply rooted, and I'm not just talking about Jesus now, I'm talking about you. When you are so confident in who you are, that you've moved past your insecurities and the opinions of everybody else, and you are confident and rooted in your identity, there is no need to get into childish, heated debates. And I'm not just talking about Jesus, I'm talking about you, whether that's in a marriage or a conversation you have in uh, your family or whether a silly debate you get to, I don't know, in politics. When you know who you are and you are rooted in your identity, there is no need to prove it. I look around, whether it's in marriage or families or politics or even in the church, the people that get into the most heated debates, the people that are offended the easiest, the people that get defensive when somebody criticizes or challenges them even on a little thing, those people are often the most insecure. Think about it. So here's Jesus, God. He has nothing to prove to anybody. And so the story continues. At this point, Jesus, you're pretty clean. The one thing that you don't want to do if you're Jesus in this moment, if Jesus had lawyers, they would be whispering into his ear, the one thing you cannot say in this moment if you want to save your own skin, of all the things, just don't say that you're God. Of anything, just don't say you're divine because if you claim to be divine, if you claim to be the Messiah, you are guilty of blasphemy and that will put you to certain death. So you can say anything you want, just don't say that you're God. Please, 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 please. Verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? So here's the moment of truth. Jesus says, I am. And then let's read the rest of what Jesus said together up on the screen. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. No, Jesus, no! Why would you say that? Jesus, what are you thinking? Jesus' response, thinking bigger. Thinking bigger bigger. Everybody say, think big. He's thinking bigger. What the crowds then didn't understand and what you and I so often forget is that Jesus came. Jesus's primary mission was not to save his own life. It was to save yours. Jesus's primary mission was not to come and say what everybody wanted to hear. It was to come and say what people needed to hear. Jesus' primary mission was not to come and teach us how to be nice people. It was to come and be our Savior. And not everybody's comfortable with that. Because if you admit that you need a Savior, you're saying, I, I need saving from something, yourself. And not all of us want to admit that. It's really hard to say, I need help. Nothing could be more countercultural counter-American than that. We think we don't need a savior. Jesus says, think bigger. I didn't come to make nice people good. I came to make dead people came to life. Think 
bigger. I love how author Philip Yancey uh, writes it. He says this, how would telling people to be nice to one another get a man crucified? What government would execute Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo? Kind of puts things into a perspective, right? It's a bit raw, but here's what I think happened. God made us in his image, and so often you and I return the favor. We make him in our image. We make him who we want him to be, the Jesus that we're comfortable with, that feels safe and comfortable to us, that fits our social or political agenda, that makes us feel good. Here's how we do this. It's very subtle, but I hear people say things like this. Oh, you know, Jesus, I just love the things that he said. He was such a good teacher, and he's, he's so inspirational. Whenever I read the Bible or, or pray and, and hear things from Jesus, they're so inspirational. I just love that, and I, I put it on posters, and I put it on bumper stickers in my car and little plaques on my walls, and Jesus is my inspiration guy because, you know, like Jesus said, like, God helps those who help themselves. And, you know, God will never give you anything that you can't handle. The problem is, they're not in the Bible. And it is so easy to get tripped up on that. Oh, I saw it on Facebook. I I'm sure God said that. I'm sure that's in the Bible. We've got to be really careful that we don't make Jesus who we want him to be, that we... Let him be who he is. No, 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 it's not the inspirational guy for me, you might say. Uh, for me, it's like, I, I really love serving the poor. I really love serving the least of these. And you guys do so much homeless ministry here and outreach to refugees and, and things like that. So I love Jesus, and I'm really into this whole Christianity thing because Jesus was all about social justice. Jesus is the face of social justice. I mean, he was always about helping the poor, and I'm really on board with that. I want to serve the least of these because Jesus was all about justice. Yes, he was, but he also wasn't afraid of offending people. He also wasn't afraid of speaking the good news and calling people to repentance, and we got to be really careful that we don't just get really busy serving and we forget that Jesus called people to some pretty challenging things like die to yourself. Let's let Jesus come on his terms, not on our terms. Yes, Jesus is a good leader. Yes, he was a prophet. Yes, he was a teacher, but he was so much more than that. Think a little bigger. Everybody say, think bigger. Think bigger. I was thinking about that this week, and I was trying to come up with a way to, to show you that, a way of illustrating that. And in our house, I would, of course, thinking about basketball, earlier. We have a three-year-old son, Caleb, and um, there he is, actually, up on the screen. No, I'm just kidding. That's not him. No, but, but from the moment he was born, I really wanted him to love basketball. So right away, uh, so back from the, the prop room uh, here, we wanted to get him started right away, and so I got him this awesome basketball hoop. So he was just learning to crawl, and so he would kind of crawl up, and he'd barely, you know, put it in, and then it would tip over on him and stuff like that. Well, as he grew up, it didn't, wasn't so cool anymore, and he figured it out that you could just go behind there and cheat and put the balls wherever you wanted them to go, and it wasn't that cool anymore. And then he started walking, and this is like, oh, man. He's like, I'm taller than that. I don't, that's not cool anymore. And so I'm like, Caleb, do you want to play basketball, I said one day? And he's like, no, not really, because he had this in mind. And I said, Caleb, think bigger. He's like, okay. And so I don't know whether it was for Christmas or whether it was for his birthday or whatever, but this one wouldn't fit behind the altar. I brought out this, 
And he's like, basketball. And I'm like, adjustable hoop. Whoa. Think bigger. And this was the most amazing thing. And still is a little bit because we can adjust it and there's room. But he's dunking on this and he's, you know, throwing it on top of his sister and stuff like that. And that's really, really fun. Think bigger. And so one day I said, Caleb, do you want to do you want to play basketball? He's like, no. And he's probably thinking of that. And I go, no, think bigger. And so I take him outside and we, our friend had a garage sale and they had one of these basketball hoops that now is outside of our garage. And he goes, whoa, that's huge. Like it's, he's going to be working on that for a long time. And so I have to like lift him up now, you know, and you know, put him in, he's getting heavier. And so he can dunk it and things like that. And so that was cool for a while, but He's kind of a homebody in some ways. He likes outside, but he likes to be inside too. And so one day like this, it was kind of rainy and cold. I said, Caleb, do you want to play basketball? Do you want to see a really cool hoop? And he's probably thinking of this hoop. Well, it just so happens is that last weekend was the faith and family night at the Iowa Energy at Wells Fargo Arena, where the games are going to be played this week. And there's a game called Preachers in Sneakers. And I said, do you want to watch Daddy play basketball? Okay. And so we walk into Wells Fargo, and that is the look on his face. That is him at Wells Fargo. And he goes, that's a big hoop, right? Probably adjustable too, right? And he is just not any bigger than that, but he's just, he's an, it's huge. It's an arena. I'm saying, think bigger. I'm constantly challenging to think bigger. And I think what happened with the religious leaders in Jesus' day is they had this view of Jesus, when Jesus is saying, no, 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 you're misunderstanding who I am. It's a much bigger view. I didn't come to build a worldly kingdom. I came, Jesus said, to build a kingdom that is not of this world and a kingdom that will have no end. Think bigger. And the thing is, it's not just about Caleb, it's not just about us. Jesus' own disciples had a very small view of who he was in his mission. And they didn't fully get it. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. It's right before Mark. And that's where we're going to camp out for the rest of today. Matthew chapter 16 is where we're going to be. Matthew 16. Earlier in Jesus' ministry, Jesus is explaining to the disciples that one day in the future, he will be arrested, that he will be handed over and killed. Jesus' disciples don't like this. Your leader is going to get taken out? No, 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 no. I don't want to be a part of that. So verse 22, Peter took him aside, Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. By the way, if you ever get a chance to hang out with Jesus, let him do the rebuking. You don't need to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, oh, that's too bad you feel that way, Peter. Don't, don't do that. Don't say that. Get behind me, Satan, is what Jesus said. You are a stumbling block to me. And let's read the rest of what he said together on the screen. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus is pulling no punches. He's leaving no stone unturned. Jesus is passionate about you and I understanding his mission, about why he came. This is what the Sanhedrin didn't understand in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is not a political king. He is not the face of social justice. He's not just an inspirational quote on your wall, guy. He's God. 
And he is not setting up a kingdom of this world. He's setting up a much bigger kingdom. Jesus is setting up for us two different paths. There is, there is a worldly path. There is a worldly kingdom. And then there is the kingdom of God. So we'll say worldly and kingdom. And it sets up this divide. There's a worldly understanding. There is a kingdom understanding of Jesus's mission. This is what the religious leaders didn't understand. Jesus says, think bigger. I'm God. I'm God. And if that's true, your life should look drastically different. Great Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis once wrote this, and you got to know C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of our time, was once an atheist. And he wanted nothing to do with the church. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And here's C.S. Lewis, atheist turned passionate follower of Jesus. And this is what he concludes in his writing. You can follow along up on the screen. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus would not just be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil. You must make your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for being a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But listen to this part. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him simply being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. There is no halfway Christianity. Christianity, following Jesus, doing this whole church thing is not a recreational sport that we do once in a while or when we feel like it. Or we show up at worship once in a while when we feel like it. For these followers of Jesus, you guys, it was an all-in, all-consuming passion direction of their life. There's two ways to live. You can live small or you can live big. And it's not just C.S. Lewis who said it, but there's a pretty popular and famous, well-known Christian celebrity that had a few things to say that was interviewed once about his thoughts on Jesus as well. Let's take a look. I look to the scriptures for poetic truth, um, as well as the sort of historical stuff I'm I'm, I'm interested in. And of course, there was a historical Jesus. No, I'm talking about God. Oh, right. And, and do well, you I see I, the, the, per, the person of Christ is my way to understand uh, God. So whatever. then what or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, a, a, you know, because actually he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts, yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. 
I, so I think, therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm no problem with miracles. <laughs> I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. You start to hear this theme over and over. By the way, that's Bono. He's the lead singer for kind of an upstart band called U2 that you may hear about in the next few years. The theme that you hear over and over again from Jesus' mouth himself, from C.S. Lewis, from Bono, is either nothing is a miracle or everything is a miracle. There's two ways to live, to see things from a worldly perspective or from a God's kingdom perspective. The fact that you woke up this morning and you have breath in your lungs and you are alive today is evidence enough that there is a God. The fact that you have desires in your life for love and intimacy and pleasure and friendship and adventure and joy, all those things that are deep longings in your heart are not there by accident. They were put there by a God that created you and that a world will never be able to satisfy you. Of course there's a God. And he longs for you to know him. He longs for you to be in a relationship with him. This is not about churchianity. This is about following Jesus and experiencing him for who he was. A little bit more than a nutter, which to translate that from Bono for you is crazy. There's no halfway. And so in Mark 14 and again here in Matthew 16, Jesus sets up this dynamic where he says there's two roads you can take. There's two ways of viewing who Jesus is. And so we're just going to walk through a few examples What would it look like to live in a worldly sense? What would it look like to live in a kingdom sense? Right here in Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to start with verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus sets up the first option we have for our lives is that we can either focus on ourselves and the needs that we have, or we can turn to the needs of of others. And if you can't read my writing, it's up there on the screen as well. And when I say taking care of your self-needs, I'm not talking about basic human needs like food and shelter. I'm talking about making life all about you. Nothing could be more countercultural. The message that you and I are bombarded with every single day is do whatever feels right to you. And if it feels good, and if everybody else is doing it, then it must be right. Then it must be good. And Jesus comes and he just slams right into that and he says, you know what? You know where you're going to find the joy? You know where you're going to find the pleasure? Discipline. Denying yourself. Living for something bigger. Is it any wonder? I talk to so many people that are in recovery. A large portion of this church, and when I say this church, I mean all of hope. I mean 17,000. And I'm not just talking about drugs or alcohol, though it's certainly those things. Whatever substance it is, whatever running from relationship to relationship, trying to find pleasure, whether it's sexual intimacy, whether it's, it's, it's uh, uh, running, running after, I don't know, work. We talk so much about alcoholism, we never talk about workaholism. 
And that we run to our jobs over and over and over again. And we run to these wells that are empty. And we go to these things over and over again. And we wonder why we come up empty. Because Jesus says you will never find life trying to just meet your own needs. You know what's something that's amazing? Is when I look around our church, the people that have the most joy, the people that have the most purpose and satisfaction are the people that serve, (laughs) are the people that have gotten over themselves and have gotten over their comfort zone, and they are serving. I walked in this morning. We have a breakfast club ministry before our early service that serves over 130 folks from shelters and and lower income. And these people, especially this morning, they were probably here at 2.30 in the morning. I don't know what time it was, but they get here early. The people that are making the breakfast and driving the bus and, 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 and making coffee and whatever it is, And when I walked in this morning, I am not a morning person, so I'm still cleaning that, whatever that is in your eyes, out from the morning. And I walk in, and all these volunteers that have been here for two and a half hours are saying, welcome to Hope Des Moines. We're so glad that you're here. Welcome to Breakfast Club. We've got some extra breakfast left over. We got some coffee. Do you want anything? We are so glad that you're here. Welcome, Pastor John. And I go, okay, one of two things. You have either had way too much coffee or it's simply the joy of the Lord. I hear so many people say, I feel so empty. And I say, are you serving anywhere? No. And if you dig deeper into the conversation, they have become so focused and Christianity has become navel-gazing. Am I a good enough Christian? Am, am Am I praying the right way? Am I reading the Bible enough? Do you think God still loves me? I think I disappointed him. I did that bad thing this past week. I'm not a very good Christian. Inward, 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 inward. And you know where the joy is? Out there, getting over yourself and serving other people. The people with the most joy serve. And I'm thinking about this idea of having a a purpose and a mission that's bigger than yourself, and it's not just here in the church. I think about the healthiest marriages that I know have a purpose bigger than themselves. Do you and your spouse have a purpose for being together more than just surviving the week? Do you and your spouse have a a, a mission statement? Do you have something bigger than, oh, we're going to raise the kids and change some diapers and shuttle them around? Like, do you forget who you are and why God brought you together? The healthiest marriages have a purpose bigger than themselves. My wife and I are far from this, and we're learning how to do this. But last week was a hard week, and we had an argument. It was our first one in six years of marriage. Some of you are like, wow. you got to be kidding me. One a week for us. Um, and, And we just at odds and we're at tension. I'm like, honey, I need to go visit in the hospital. She's like, I'll come with you. There's mutual friends, people that we knew, and we need to go visit in the hospital. And so we go and we're serving and we're bringing them some coffee and we're praying with some people and we're walking on the hospital, greeting people and saying hi to people, none of which is about us and our petty little issues. And we spend a couple hours at the hospital and we're walking out to our car in the parking lot and I turn to her and I just have this little chuckle and I say, honey, I have completely forgotten what we were arguing about. And she goes, I have to. (laughs) Well, let's just drop it then. Okay. Because for a brief moment, we got outside of ourselves. You want to strengthen your marriage? Find a mission. Find a place that you can serve together. 
The healthiest families I know serve together. They do something bigger. They give their kids a vision that's bigger than just consuming stuff. The healthiest small groups I know, many of you are in a small group here at the church. The healthiest small groups I know serve together on a regular basis. You show me a small group that gets together in a holy little huddle and hasn't invited anybody in in three or four years and they sit around every single week in the living room and read the Bible and say, wow, look at us, we are a small group. I guarantee you that group will die in one or two years. However, you show me a small group that serves together on a regular basis, that's found a mission, that is constantly asking God and praying, God, who do you want to invite in? Who needs to sit in those empty chairs? God, how do you want us to multiply? How do you want us to get outside of our living room or get outside of the church building and be on mission? Nothing will bring your group closer than serving together. You can think big or you can think small. Jesus says, think bigger. So that's the first comparison. The second comparison is this. Jesus says, verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And so the next comparison that Jesus sets up is there's two ways to live. One is to live for self-preservation. Everybody say preservation. Preservation. Or you can take some kingdom risks. And what I mean by that is not silly risks like walking outside today in 235 and trying not to get hit by a car. I'm talking about kingdom risks. Because here's what we do. When we live for self-preservation, it's preserving my image of what do my friends think if I get really into this Jesus thing? What do my coworker think if I offer to pray for them when they're going through a divorce? What will my, my, my spouse think if I, if I try to get outside of my comfort zone and, and pursue her? What if I venture into those vulnerable, oh, I don't want to go to that area of my life. That's, that's, that's a frontier area for my life. So we're just going to coexist as spouses. We're just going to exist as a family and just go along with what every other family is doing and just burn our kids into the ground with busyness. Because we've got to protect our image. We've got to keep up with everybody else is doing. We've got to live for self-preservation. I've got to stay in my comfort zone. And I've been following Jesus for a while, and now you're calling me to serve? Now you're calling me to step up and lead a small group? No, 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 no. That's way beyond my comfort zone. That's way beyond my Jesus bubble. Jesus says, kindly, get over yourself. Take a risk once in your life. Be intentional. Live the kind of life that you don't have to get to the end of your life and say, what if? I wonder if I would have. I wonder if I would have made that call. I wonder if I would have listened and obeyed God when I heard him nudging. I wonder if I would have gone on that trip. I wonder if I would have led that group. I wonder if I would have joined that team. I wonder if I made that call. I wonder if I would have prayed for that coworker, invited that neighbor to Easter. I wonder if I would have pursued my spouse. I wonder if a little bit more I would have listened to my kids and put down my phone so I could watch them grow up. I don't want to live with woulda, shoulda, coulda. I want to live with intentionality, don't you? I want to get to the end of my life and not have any regrets. Stop playing it so safe, Jesus says. Think bigger. And last but not least, Jesus sets up this last parallel for us in verse 26. And let's read this up on the screen together. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? 
I mean, Jesus lays it out pretty clearly. The last comparison he sets up is you can either live for self-gain or you can live for things that are eternal and live for eternity. I've asked you once, and I think I'll ask you again, what are you going to do this week that's going to live beyond you? What are you going to spend time on this week? What are you going to do in your weekly schedule that is going to last for eternity? I'll give you a clue. This past week, one of the things I least like to do, but one of the highest honors that I have in being a pastor is being able to officiate funerals. I did two of them this week, and I have another one this week, and I don't like doing them but they are an honor because you get a glimpse into what really matters in life. And they were both for men that were highly decorated uh, military veterans. One of them had, had served in, in, in uh, multiple wars. One of them was a professional golfer. He had golfed with Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. He had trophies and medals of all these tournaments that he'd, he'd won. He, he, he was so famous that there were so many people at the funeral they had to set up extra chairs and it overflowed out of the funeral home. The titles, the accolades, the honors, and yet I'm standing here in front of a casket or an urn with all of their friends and family out in front of me looking for answers and looking for hope. And I was reminded once again of all this stuff. You can't take any of it with you. And why do we wait to funerals? Why do we wait till people close to us die to get some perspective, to think bigger about what really matters in life? Why do we wait? Why not now? And I'm talking to the family, and here's their dad that was famous and, and rich and had all these titles and honors and everything, and yet all the family could say, all his kids, kids could say, I would trade all of that for one more round with my dad. When you live for the things of the world, it's about investing in stuff. When you live for things that are eternal, you invest in people. And if you need an example, there was a carpenter from Nazareth that had three years to change the world. And what did he spend his time doing? Building castles and an army. He picked 12 ragtag guys and loved them like they'd never been loved before and invested in their life, what clue does that give you into how you should be spending your time? What are you living for these days? What is the direction of your life? What is the trajectory of your life? That was the question that a man named Johnny was wrestling with, a middle-aged businessman that had been highly successful. And him and his wife just felt this restlessness inside. And maybe you feel that today too. Because they've been living over here. They had all their needs met. They had stayed in their nice, safe Christian bubble and going to church their whole life. And they certainly had everything that the world could offer. And yet they were empty. And I want to show you a little bit of Johnny's story. And watch how God comes and intersects your safe, comfortable Christian life. Helps you get over yourself and helps you think bigger. Let's take a look. Looking back in the past 35 years of my life, I realized that I was focused on success at work, 
and that left me very little quality time for serving God. The result was that, guess what? I made more money, but I didn't do ministry the way I knew I should be doing it, thinking that, oh, well, I'm young. I have more time. So 30s turns to 40s, 40s turns to 50s, and now I'm in my late 50s. Finally, I'm trying to flip it in the right direction, spending quality time doing God's work. The process of identifying which ministry my wife and I should select was very important to us, and we put a lot of thought into it. So when we discovered that over 600 refugees come to our city every year, we felt compelled to participate. The way I'm wired, it's important to me to not be involved in huge events that are Billy Grahamish. I'm not made for the spotlight. I'm prone to pride, and that's what I have to fight. So put me in a spot that doesn't foster that, and that's where the Lord is putting us. When I read scripture, I see that it is incumbent upon all Christians to love God and to love others. Jumbo, Jumbo. Someone who shows up and didn't think he would ever get there, and he came here by the skin of his teeth and he knows not what the future holds. That to me is a ripe situation to love others and I want to be part of it. You want to see it? You want to go see? When love is not all that complicated, it's actually quite simple. It sort of looks like making yourself very helpful to the people in your life. When you're my age, you realize the weight of idolatry and realizing that other things have been more important and have taken the place of God. But at the same time, what I'm encouraged about is the direction of my life. I will befriend this family. I will become aware of needs. I will pray for this family. Where that will lead, I'm not sure. Everybody's aiming at something. It's incumbent upon us to know what is that and what should it be. My aim in life is what God wants, what brings Him pleasure, what is His desire. Everybody's aiming at something. What are you aiming at? What is the trajectory of your life? And some of you are saying, well, that's his story, and I don't feel necessarily called to work with refugees. Okay, what's your niche? What's your spot? Where do you start? And maybe today it starts with a step, taking a Step. Amazing things happened when he got over himself, when he started investing in people, and he got out of his comfort zone. You'll notice that's where the joy came. I hear so many people ask me, John, what is God's will for me? What is my purpose? 
Maybe it starts by taking one step. A lot of you have kids. How do you live with a kingdom mindset when it comes to raising your kids? Do you just discipline them or you disciple them? Instead of just be quiet, it's I want to teach you about mercy. I want to teach you about grace. I want to teach you about forgiveness. How about your finances? What would it look like to live with a kingdom view of your finances? Is it, is it all for you? Is it all to keep for yourself and meet your needs? Or is the first thing you do is sit down at the beginning of every month with your budget and say, God, of everything that you've given me, where are you calling me to give it away? How are you calling me to tithe? Some of you are like, I can't tithe. I'm barely getting by. You can live with one of two perspectives. Either 10% you give back to God and 90% is yours, or you live with the perspective that everything is God's and he's loaning you 90%. It's all his anyway. What would it look like to live with a kingdom mindset when it comes to leadership? If you haven't noticed, we've been growing. We added a, serve, a Saturday service about a month ago and that service is growing. And there's a lot of new people. And they're, they're hungry and they want to grow and they want to get connected. We've had people coming up to us saying, I want to get in a group. I want to be in a small group. And here's what we need. Leaders to get out of your comfort zone. That are to get over your fear of, I don't know enough and I'm not equipped enough and I wouldn't know what to do. We'll train you. Are you willing? God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. You do know that. Get out of your comfort zone. Get over yourself. If you want to be a leader, give me an email this week. Write it on your card before you leave. There are people that are desperate to get in a group. We need some leaders. Are you going to think small or are you going to live big? Jesus said, I have not called you to be comfortable. I've called you to be mine, to go on mission with me, to be a part of what I'm doing in this world. And my challenge to you is not to wait not wait another day. I, I can't tell you. I'm standing there at those funerals this past week and I can't help but think the most dangerous phrase that we say so often in the church is later. I'll get to it later. When things slow down at work, when I'm not so busy, when I don't have this going on, when the kids aren't so you know needy or whatever it is, is there ever going to be a good time? Live with intentionality. Take some kingdom risks this week and find the joy that's on the other side. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. God, we thank you that you call us beyond ourselves. We thank you that being a part of your church and following you is not primarily about just getting our needs met. But it's about focusing our, our hearts on you and realizing that you came to serve, not to be served. God, I pray that we would be worshipers and not just consumers. I pray that we'd be people that have our hearts and minds set on you, that you would clarify for us what your vision is for our lives, that you would clarify for us what our purpose is, and that you would intersect our lives this week with divine interruptions. That you would mess up our schedule so that we would have to be aware of what you're doing. God, shake us out of our comfort zones and make us aware of what you want to do in our lives. God, thank you for your love for us that transforms us. Your love and your grace that we don't have to earn. 
but that has been freely given to us by your Son, Jesus Christ. God, thank you that your kingdom is not of this world and that you invite us to live in it. And we pray all these things in your name. And all God's people said together, amen, amen.